This is the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast, where we uncover the alternative investments and strategies that billionaires use to grow wealth. The tools and tactics you'll learn from this podcast will make you a better investor and help you build legacy wealth. Join us as we dive into the world of alternative investments, uncover strategies of the ultra-wealthy, discuss economics, and interview successful investors. Welcome back to the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. We're really excited about this episode. We're going to be talking about private equity and venture capital. So we just, in the last episode, covered the kind of wide world of passive real estate investing. So if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely encourage you. It's a really high level, broad strokes view of real estate investing. What does that look like? How do you do that? What are the different strategies and structures involved? And we're going to take a similar approach to private equity. And so the whole concept, again, of this podcast is investing like a billionaire and emulating the strategies and investment vehicles that the ultra wealthy are using to generate better returns and better diversification that the average investors have historically been very under allocated to. And the kind of three big alternatives that these ultra wealthy investors are investing in are real estate, private equity, and hedge funds. So the next episode will be on hedge funds and that's gonna be a really fun one as well. But the very interesting thing is private equity is actually a very big holding of these institutional family office wealthy investors. And as we're doing the research, even larger than I had previously seen. Right. And so our continuum shows basically that most investors, retail investors, are pretty much entirely in stocks and bonds, very under allocated to alternatives. Yeah. As soon as you get up into the wealthier categories of investors, they start to get into private real estate. And even the bigger guys and more sophisticated guys are getting more into private equity and hedge funds. So it's kind of a continuum. The more sophisticated, the more assets to deploy, the more you're into these other strategies. Right. But it doesn't have to. There's, there's no reason why guys that aren't billionaires can't emulate their allocation methodologies and get their outsized returns. Exactly. And so the continuum here, you know, level one is kind of the stocks, bonds, mutual funds, standard portfolio. Level two we talk about is the real estate investing. That's where a lot of investors kind of the next step go to is the real estate. And then third here is private equity. And, you know, we have some cool data from Tiger 21. And this is a group of ultra wealthy investors. You have to have at least $10 million of investable assets to be a part of this group. And they survey their members, which is over 700 members. So this represents at least you know, $70 billion of ultra wealthy investors portfolios. And a huge portion of it is in private equity. And it is just about equivalent as real estate. So this is a big deal. This is a big part of what investors are looking at. And I think a big part of what the average high net worth is probably not as much into. So this is something I'm really excited to dive into. And a little bit of background on, on Bob and I, you know, so my background before kind of private equity world is uh, as a banker and as an underwriter and a lender for several years and did quite a bit of M&A or mergers and acquisitions, did several leveraged buyouts, also did some distressed uh, financing. So you've seen all these strategies we're talking about, basically. Yes. Yeah, so I've seen a lot of these strategies at play and um, it's very cool. You've seen a lot of people make money and then you see a lot of poor deals as well. And so it's really important to understand you know, what the strategy is, where you're at in the cycle, and some of the different things that impact uh, the strategy and the returns. And then, Bob, I want to share a little bit about your background as a tech entrepreneur. 
Yeah, so computer scientist by background and started a tech business in the late 90s that we got in a, one of the larger VC, VC companies in the Midwest and the United States. It became one of the fastest growing companies in the Midwest, United States in the late 90s and won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. So I'm very familiar with venture capital and also with hedge funds because I also was a hedge fund manager for a while. So yeah, so it's a great space to be playing on and uh, you know, let's dive in. Okay, perfect. So first off, it's, it's kind of helpful to talk about what is private equity, right? This is a term that a lot of people have heard and it can mean a lot of different things. And so very simply in the way we're going to kind of describe it is you know, these are investors that are raising capital, uh, usually in a fund structure that are investing in private companies with the goal to either IPO or do a public offering at some point or to sell and be acquired to a larger competitor. And right. so very simply, that's what the strategy right. is. I mean, really, yeah. it's the shark tank, right? That's exactly. Uh, that's private equity. So you're basically buying a stake in these companies. So private right. equity is generally speaking passive. So you have managers who would deploy your capital. So if Mark Cuban had a shark tank exactly. fund, you would invest in his fund and he would deploy it for you. That's the idea. But within that, there's a huge gamut of opportunities. Yeah. And just as a quick aside, you know, a lot of people say real estate private equity, and that, that is, you know, technically true. And what we talked about in the last podcast, you know, that is a subset of private equity, but it's so large, it's kind of its own animal. Right. And so what we're talking about is investing in businesses and companies, right. not real estate. So these are operating businesses. This yep. is not a piece of real estate, you know, necessarily. It's a business that's doing some kind of operations and producing income, business income. Right. And so, you know, if you're kind of new to this space, why should I be invested in, in private equity versus public equity, which is stocks. And, you know, we found some great research from Bain & Company, large consulting firm, and they've done pretty exhaustive research in comparing the returns of private equity companies and kind of their comparable benchmarks in the public markets. And returns over the past 30 years on average have been over 13%. Annual. Annually. That's darn good. Very good. And then the comparable benchmark for that in the public markets was an, about an 8% return. Which is still good. Which is still great. <laughs> and that's, you know, a lot of times people quote that number as the long-term average of the S&P of, you know, over the past right. 100 years or so. So that's within that range, but this is substantial outperformance. And we're going to kind of dive into, you know, what these strategies are. And it's obviously, you know, pretty clear why investors like these strategies, right? right? You know, the biggest drawback, and we've talked about this in prior episodes, but is usually going to be liquidity. And that, that's for the, any kind of private market investment, that's going to be the biggest drawback. So you're kind of giving up liquidity for- Meaning you can't get your money back right. when you want it. It's locked up for a, it's in prison for a period of time, but it's in a very right. gilded prison. Right. So, And the reason it's locked up is these companies that execute these strategies generally have longer time horizons to execute right. the full You got to go strategy. do your IPO or find your, find your buyout. Now you right. talked about these returns, but what you didn't mention is that in the last few years, the returns have not been that good. Right. Yeah. So if you look at the last 10 years, the outperformance is much less compared to the benchmark. And it makes sense. The last 10 years, the public markets have been on a tear, right? The right. annualized return has been very high, but you know, there's a few things there. One, on the long-term average, the stock market has not sustained those levels of returns. Right. So if you look at it at a broader you know, scope, it's, right. it's So it's not fair competing against the S&P 500 for the last <laughs> right. decade because it's been, it's been ripping. Right. But the other side of it is because of these returns, it has attracted more capital. And 
just like we're talking about now to introduce these strategies to newer investors, the regulation changes have allowed a you know, the floodgates of capital to flow into the space. And so it is important to look at these with, you know, a little bit of a grain of salt and realize that, you know, it's timing is important and there's a lot of capital looking for a good return. So, you know, with that, let's kind of jump right in. And the way we've kind of broken this down is kind of the easiest way we think to describe it is really by the business cycle. So if you have a you know, business background, you understand kind of the stages of business at, at a large scale, right? It's the early stage, your startup stage, growth stage, mature stage, and then declining distress stage. And, you know, over the, the long haul, most businesses go through some level of the cycle and there's different strategies involved with each stage of the cycle. Right. Different strategies that apply to businesses in that in that stage. Right. So let's just jump into the first stage, which is early stage. And so this is where most people hear the term venture capital. That's most of the time where they're going to be playing is in this early stage company. It's going to be a company that many times is pre-revenue. They maybe have some level of a prototype of a product or a software, but it hasn't been fully tested um, at a large scale. And they go raise money from venture capital firms, angel investors mm. with the hopes of making it big. So talk a little bit about kind of the strategy here. You have some experience here. So and- yeah, so it's minority ownership. So yep. the idea is a venture capital investor generally does not take over the company. They just simply add a board seat. Usually there's multiple rounds. So actually different within this early stage, there's actually different stage of venture capital. You, you have venture capital that left seed stage, which is yes. literally two guys and an idea, <laughs> you know, all the way to really mezzanine stage or pre-IPO stage. And it's all considered venture capital and, you know, invest different amounts of money. It usually gets larger over time at, at higher valuations, but less risk. Exactly. And so and typically what they'll do is they'll come in and do an A, an a round, a B round, and a C round. There's three separate rounds of financing that mm-hmm. are a year or more apart generally. And the idea is each one is bigger, higher valuation, and preparing you for your eventual exit, which is either a strategic acquisition or an IPO. These are generally fairly high-risk companies. And so the strategy is basically to get uh, to go for moonshots. Right. The so the very first, first the guy right. that invested in my business was actually a very well-known venture capitalist and is with one of the very early venture capital firms in the 80s and one of the most successful and he said this was their strategy, that they look for one in 18 of their investments in their fund, one in 18 has to hit. And they only look for companies that have a potential of doing a 100x, uh-huh. a 100x <laughs> investment. So it's it's a moonshot. And that's their strategy. And basically, so if they get a double, any of their companies, right. they get a double or a triple, it's a wipe. They couldn't care less. They're only looking for the 100xers and pretty much everything else they just... X out of. Right. It's irrelevant. It's immaterial to them. And so that's the strategy. They look for one in eight, 18, and they had super high returns during their heyday. Right. They were returning over 100% per year yeah. uh, to investors. You know, now those those returns haven't been sustained, but but uh, if you look at the top quartile, according to Cambridge Research, the top quartile of venture capital firms have produced around over the last 10 years or so have produced between 15 and 27% annual returns. So yeah, on the other hand, the bottom quartile, the underperformers, they're single digits. Sure. So it's typical in this stage, there's a lot of, you know, the guys who are very good at this are just killing it. And so very, very high returns potentially, but also, you know, fair amount of risk. I will point out it's very cyclical too, you know, so almost all of them rely on a very 
active and hot public market, even sure. even the strategic exits. They're looking at the strategic players. So the big strategic buyers usually are accessing right. public funds. So if, if the market just had a big crash, you see all of this kind of kind of fall apart. Yeah, so what happens pause. is in the business, as the business cycle, you know, the broader business cycle continues, you know, the time to invest in VC is, is at the beginning of the business cycle, near the bottom of the business cycle, right. or as it, we're just emerging into a growth phase. So, you know, during the March you know, 2020 COVID pandemic, you know, there's nobody doing IPOs. There's not a lot of activity. Everything is just seized up. The markets are just right. seized up. Same same as in 2008, you know, 2009, 2010, there is no activity. VCs are not basically sitting on their capital trying to figure out what to do because, right. uh, you know, that kind of thing. So, so those are actually good times to get started, knowing right. that in five years, you'll have a good exit as the markets recover potentially. So so you want to be early to mid-cycle in investing in VCs, in my opinion. Right. It's just a quick sum up. So at this stage, it's higher risk because, you know, these are early companies, haven't been proven at a larger right. scale. But the returns can be very substantial. A lot of times that one or two winners will pay for all the ones that didn't work right. out and usually well above what you, what you did right. not capture on that. So kind of the next stage here is really growth stage. This is still, I would consider venture capital because it is more minority ownership. Um, and maybe it's a later stage of the, of the fundraising, um, you know, a series B, a series C. And so the idea here is it's a company that, that's been proven. So they've, they've got revenue coming in. They've got customers. They're growing healthfully, but they want to scale faster. And so if it's in a particular industry where it's harder to protect uh, your IP, if it's tech or something that... It's, it's beneficial to scale faster. They will partner with a growth equity firm that will come and invest alongside and usually, again, in a minority way and help them scale faster. And so one of the things in, in both of these stages is a concept called, called cash burn. You want to kind of break down what cash burn means in these stages? Um, okay, I can. <laughs> so cash burn is effectively uh, the, these investors come in and add more capital and the, the goal is growth. So they'll go and hire more employees, they'll go and spend more in marketing, and they'll basically load up the expenses to where they're running at a net operating loss. But the hopes is that they're generating- Try and um, generate top line. Generate enough revenue, and then at some point that'll catch up and need the capital that you know funded the cash burn for a while. So that's very common here and something that you know in your experience you know with this VC firm um, in your past company was kind of the strategy, right? You're growing- Oh, yeah. Yeah. You start hiring everybody you can and- you know, the burn rate just goes to the moon, but also the revenue does. So, right. So, yeah, that's the strategy. And it's so it's either you land on the moon or you flame out, you know, and there's no middle ground, you know, that's their model. Right. So a lot of times the firms at this level, they can be a little more creative in the types of financing. So if it's a you know, more well-established company, maybe they'll come in as a debt partner or as a you know, mezzanine debt, which we'll talk about those in a minute. But they're not taking as much of the upside, but they may charge kind of higher interest rates to the companies, but then they don't have to give up as much equity. And so you kind of see different strategies at play here. One kind of a very common strategy is called the roll-up strategy, which is, is kind of a cool concept. And you want to break that down a little bit? Yeah. So it's very common. So when you, when you have a fragmented industry, I've seen several strategies here that just are great winners, you know, that happened with uh, accounting firms, lots of little accounting yeah. firms and CBiz came in and started buying all these little accounting firms to build really what's become an accounting giant sure. at this point. And then now, so you take these small firms and they're heavily discounted to the market. So if, if this little accounting firm was actually public, if it was 
you know, 100 times bigger and public, they would get much higher multiples and revenue, right, or earnings. Yep. Okay, so so private companies are heavily discounted. Their multiples are very low. Right. So typical private company multiple might be 5 or 7x, means they're, the company is valued at 5 or 7 times earnings. Yep. In the public markets, it's 20 to 30 to 40. Right. Or if you're Amazon, 93, you know. <laughs> or Tesla, 1,000. 1,000. So so when you access public markets, you get a lot, the value of the company goes up dramatically. So the idea here is to roll up smaller companies and use the, the private company discount yep. to assemble a, a stable of very good smaller companies. And uh, so, so one one strategy was like I just said, the accounting firms. Another one I've I've seen these guys hired. They they basically bought kind of the leading car dealership. You know, these are right. high cash flowing businesses, but too small to go public. They bought the leading one with the best systems, the best processes, the best automation, the best everything, and and they paid a high higher multiple for that company. And then they went and, and did an acquisition strategy to buy up all the little smaller guys at much lower multiples. Right. And then use the management team of the the of the of the first one yep. to basically replace the management or the operations of the, of these other little ones and to build a very large conglomerate right. of car dealerships that that had had the excellent operating characteristics of right. the first one they did. So and it's it's basically a finance play. It's a finance engineering play. You have access to this this fi- cheap financing to buy all these companies. You create a nice exit for these mom and pop operators. But you create a huge amount of value. I mean, you could create hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in value just by doing this strategy. Right. So it's called a roll-up strategy. Very common if you pick the right industry and you have the right timing. So right. great money can be made there. Yeah. So it's obviously a little bit less risky than you know the early stage because these are established businesses. So you're not necessarily banking on the, uh, the home run, you know, and one of, of 18 or whatever, you know, kind of more I'd call good solid doubles. You're hitting really good doubles and, you know, a lot of value can be created as you achieve that scale. You know, not only do you get more operating income, but you also expand the value based on the multiples that are being paid at, at the larger levels. So a lot of firms kind of play in that stage. Kind of the next strategy is what we'll call the mature stage. And so these are large companies, they are not high growth at this point. They've either kind of achieved market saturation, they're well-established brands. A lot of times they, they'll even be publicly traded businesses mm-hmm. that then get taken private, mm-hmm. uh, but they have strong cash flows. And so because of the cash flows, you can do a lot of things with it. And, and if you have a strong cash flow in business, then it can attract a lot of cheaper financing like from banks. And wow. so a lot of times what they'll do, the strategy here is, is usually twofold. And it's either financial engineering or operational. So this is a leveraged buyout is what you're talking yes. describing here. Yeah. So the most common way that they execute a strategy in a mature business is a leveraged buyout. And so effectively what that means is, you know, if you understand real estate, it's a very similar concept where you are buying a company with both equity and debt. You bring the equity and then you work with a debt partner like a large bank or debt provider. And because there's cash flow in this business, you're using the cash flow of the business you're buying to basically get a lot of cheap debt. Yep, get a lot of cheap debt. You can already you know cover the debt payments from that, and then any increases in value that you create have a multiplying effect because of that debt's not taken in the upside, and so it's a multiplying effect to the equity. Just holders. like if you bought real estate on, and that real estate has a five percent return, but if you if you leverage it up and you only put twenty percent down, well, you yep. got a way higher than a five percent return because of the leverage. So it's, it's that kind of a deal. Exactly, exactly. That's the financial engineering side of it. The other side of it is you know operational efficiency. So a lot of times these companies get that get big, they can get bloated with the expenses and you know staff and 
technology, other things. And so um, you can kind of bring efficiencies. If you have you know, an experienced management team in a certain vertical or a certain you know, business segment that they've done this before and they can operate these businesses. And the other kind of big differentiator at this stage is when they're doing a leveraged buyout, they're not coming and taking a little piece of the business, a minority stake. They're actually buying the whole business and operating it. Right. And so it's a very different set of risks because this is a full operational strategy. Right. And so generally you want to find sponsors and, and funds that have experience in certain verticals. And because of that, a lot of them will specialize in certain right. verticals. And I've actually seen where a lot of these bring their own management teams. Yeah. <clears throat> so they have the guy that's done, you know, X number of these, who's the awesome food guy, right? Or right. the awesome, you know, IT guy or whatever he is of this industry that knows this whole business. And so it's like a full on head transplant here <laughs> right. where you go in, you know, throughout the old guys, bring in the new team and take it to the moon. So depending on these strategies, you know, there can be some great wins here as well in the LBO space, you know. Right. Yeah. So that kind of leads us to the next part, which is the client in distress stage. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, the mature stage that they haven't on a downward trend, but they're not having huge, huge growth. But at, at this next stage, this is really where companies are maybe past their heyday, right? Right. And they're looking for some help, right? Do we, how do we turn the ship around and right this ship? And it's, it's a much, you know, it's again, a majority ownership generally, and it's you're operating the business and you have to turn around a company. So as an underwriter, I'd, I'd seen several of these. And it's risky, right? Because what are the current management doing that is not working? Right. And, what well, and what's the do? new management going to do that's <laughs> going to change all that? It's going to change all that. But it depends on where you're at and what, what the business cycle and what types of business you're going after. But one kind of interesting concept I've seen in this space is there's a guy who is raising capital for a fund that is going and buying well-known retail brands. So he's buying like Steinmart, Radio Shack, these names that everybody knows, but are kind of on their last leg. <laughs> and he buys them for pennies on the dollar. Right. And then his background is as an e-commerce, you know, doing a lot of e-commerce business and helping businesses scale online. And so he's So he does these- a high tech turnaround of these things. Exactly. So he uses the existing brand awareness and leverages that online to help turn these businesses around and he mm-hmm. picks them up for super cheap. And the goal is to, you know, get a nice multiple when, when these businesses pick back up. And so that's another, you know, very interesting strategy that some will play in. It's obviously again going to be very specialized in the business segment you're going to be in and make sure you can operate a business. And you can make money in any and all of yeah. these strategies. The key is finding great operators. And right. as an investor, knowing you know, hearing the story and believing the story that this is the right timing for this right. kind of opportunity. Yeah. We've kind of said it all along, but, you know, these strategies can be applied to a variety of industries. And a lot of times there'll be multiple industries that you can use different strategies in. But, you know, it's it's not just the big high tech companies. It's manufacturing is a very commonly targeted PE focus because it's it's a boring business. It's high cash flow. And it's generally not going to go anywhere anytime soon, right? So um, there's a lot, lot of ways that you can play in this space. Let's talk a little bit about structure. So this is, you know, we've talked about the overall strategies and how, you know, firms execute them. But next question would be, well, how do I invest in these? What are the best ways to kind of get involved in, in private equity? And uh, that's kind of what we want to talk about now. So really the first kind of easiest way to get in, I would say, is angel investing, right? It's, that's a term maybe some have heard. And it's very simply, you know, generally individuals, sometimes groups of individuals that are going to go and invest in 
a company. And a lot of times it's going to be earlier stage at this point because they're writing out as big of checks as maybe a, a big PE firm would. But they are a lot of times going to come in as an advisor if they have experience in this type of business and a little more hands-on. And you know, a lot of times there's you know local uh, angel investing groups, local groups that you can get involved with that you can invest in local companies. And it's a really cool way if you want to be more actively involved. You know, angel investing is a, is a great a great thing. We know a lot of people that are actively involved. You know, that are investors with with us in Aspen, and they've kind of hit a point where they're financially set, but they want to give back and help other people be successful and in their businesses. And so it's really a cool mentorship, but also a financially rewarding way to invest. Yeah. You know, the problems are there, you know, you get in a high cash burn business and you bring in a little bit of money and you realize that they need a whole lot more money and you realize that, (laughs) you know, so you're not the be all end all and you don't have a controlling interest. So a lot of these don't have good outcomes, you know? And so if you're going to do individual angel investing, you better know the deal and you better have a pool of these things, you know, a large, a large group, because a lot of times this doesn't have good outcomes in, in my experience. Yeah, I mean, so tread carefully. And obviously, if you're going to be investing in individual companies, you lose diversification, right? So, you know, it's a principle of investing where you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. And it's important if you are doing these kind of individual investments, do smaller amounts and spread it out across. Them. And I would only touch areas that you're actually familiar with. Right. So if you're a biotech guy, then do that. If you're a tech guy, then do that. If you're not any of those things, don't touch them because right. you really probably should let someone who's qualified do those kinds of deals. Yeah. So, yeah, and it can also be a time sink. It can take a lot more sure. time than you really want to put in. You know, these are generally very needy businesses. Yes. And high-stress businesses. Right. Yeah. The next level would be crowdfunding. So, you know, if you have ever looked into angel investing, you know, very common place that people look now is AngelList. Um, this is basically an online platform where businesses that are looking to raise money will go and put their business, their deal up there, what their valuation is, how much they're looking to raise and try to attract individual investors. Right. And yeah. AngelList actually has has experienced VCs who yep. run their own little funds and you can put money into them. You know, so to get with the big boys, the guys with the top quartile, you know, you know, probably have to write a much larger check. Right. And very difficult to get in those things. Sure. So but AngelList has some less known VCs who you know, I don't know where they would fit in the return range. Right. But there's literally, they have their resumes up there and their returns and you can, you know, there's dozens of them. You can pick, okay, I'll follow this guy. <laughs> and you can even do monthly subscriptions. They call them the rolling funds. Yep. So kind of a, you know, a small player's way to play in the angel world. And they also have their own fund. Right. The angel is sponsored yep. fund yep. that they do. So obviously benefits of doing that at AngelList, they have a a very wide array of options, right? If your deal flow is limited because you're not in this space actively, it's a great way to see a lot of different types of deals, you know, how they're, how they're raising, how they're being valued. And like you said, you can invest alongside experienced VCs. So you can kind of use that as, Hey, if all these guys are jumping, it's, you know, probably got some potential, but some of the downsides are, you know, you're going to, it's going to be harder to do due diligence on a company that's that level. And you're usually going to be a smaller player, a smaller fish in the pond. So you're going to have less, you know, impact on the overall financial decisions and operational decisions. And so you're, you're kind of going along for the ride, but you know, can have some great outcomes there. And that kind of leads to the next way to, what is uh, shares post? Shares post. Yeah, I found this one the other day. So this is kind of a similar deal, but it's uh, basically you're investing alongside of VCs and you can be a small sliver of the capital stack and 
Um, so I think it's similar to Angel Angel List. Another one is, is Our Crowd. It's another one I found recently. It's very similar. So all these are kind of different made parts of, of the Now, where's the one? There was one where people that had options and shares of pre-public companies were actually listing them for sale. I thought that was oh, interesting. Shares, I think that was Shares Post. Maybe that was. Yeah. yeah that's, so that's if you want to buy a, a right. share of Dropbox before it ever went public, you could buy yeah. it. But you don't know, you know, that's risky too. Right. You know, right. They might have a stinky IPO or <laughs> they may not have an IPO, but right. you can buy the shares. Usually at a discount to a park as a person needs liquidity and so they're willing to or trade. Or at a premium because they're greedy. So you know, <laughs> either way. You never know, but right. yeah. Yeah. The other one is probably the most common way, you know, if, if you want to get in this as more of a passive investor, which is really what we're targeting with our audience, right? Is how do we diversify across a lot of different asset classes passively and not have to have the brain damage of operating these deals if yeah, and this go sideways? Generally, right? the way to go is you right. get super experienced operator who has a very well-defined strategy, yes. clear target, all the staff and analysis to do this right. And those are the guys that win generally. Yeah. So this is, again, investing directly with a private equity fund. And so, again, you're going to leverage the experience and the expertise of a sponsor that has a great track record that's been in this particular space for a while. They get all the deal flow. They get all the best terms and financing. They you know, have all the staff in place to help execute these strategies. And you know, that's generally going to be the best way to go as you're kind of getting into this. And again, it's, it's more passive. And a lot of times they're going to raise a fund that's going to invest in a lot of different companies, right? Anywhere from a handful all the way up to a dozen to two dozen. And so you get a lot of diversification that way too right. when these these firms are, you know, investing and spreading across several that are going to, you know, right. excuse me. You're going to pay their fees, but generally they're worth it, right? <laughs> I mean, if you get the right guy, they're bringing massive amount of expertise and they're going to create a massive amount of value through their expertise. Yeah. And you get to sit back and watch and get some passive returns. Yeah. And the numbers we quoted earlier on the Bain company's research was net of fees, right? So it's it's clear that even with paying maybe an asset management fee or whatever fees they're going to charge, it's going to be worth it, you know, from a net standpoint. So, you know, some of the cons though is you know, if they're raising it in a fund, a lot of times it's a blind fund. You don't know what target companies they're going to uh, you know, invest in. And um, so you don't have a lot of visibility into the exact portfolio companies that they're going to be. It's a blind um, pool. So it's a blind pool. So you either do all your own due diligence or you find the team and let them do it and you pay them to do it. Right. So it's it's really your risk profile. What do you want to do? You kick the tires kind of guy? Right. You know, or are you, a, you know, I'm going to hire the right guy right. and let them kick the tires. Right. The next way to invest in, in private equity is really, you know, a subset of investing with PE funds because this is a fund of funds. And so the concept is you invest with a manager that has a fund that then goes and invests in other PE funds, right? So not even investing directly in companies, right. they're investing in other funds. And so this is even another level of diversification <laughs> right. to where it's not only diversification across the portfolio companies, but also different strategies. So maybe they're going to do some leverage buyouts, maybe do some early stage, and they can kind of mix and kind of plug and play right. where they want. And, and you would think, gosh, why would you add another layer of fees? <laughs> but, but again, you know, in my research, these guys can do a really good job. They actually do a better job because one... They know who the better players are. Yes. They also have a macroeconomic view. Yep. So they may say, well, based on our timing of the IPO market, we need to heavily weight towards this type of fund or this type of fund. Right. And I know who the managers and operators are, the sponsors in those areas. 
And so they generally earn their keep by yeah. making their general. These are more the super brainiacs who are doing the real analysis yeah. and of all these different funds. And they can generally get pretty good deals. We know how much sponsors sometimes give sweetened deals yeah. for capital groups, capital piles. Yeah. And so it could be you're adding layer fees, but you're getting a discount from what exactly. the other investor we get. So it's not automatic. Don't do this. In fact, right. I would say it's a great strategy. You know, generally, probably it's the larger investors that are going to go for the fund of funds kind of guys. Sure. But it's a good option there, you know. You know, and I'll say this, too, as we're, you know, wrapping up on this, that, you know, I had my venture capital friend. He said, here's our investment. Axiom is we always invest not on the horse. We don't we don't bet on the horse, but we bet on the jockey. Right. Yep. So they're looking primarily for an operator that has the certain profile and track yeah. record, et cetera, versus that particular business plan or that particular deal. Yeah. And I would say if really throughout this whole, all the strategies, all the structures, that's really the best strategy. Just find the jockey you believe in, not necessarily the vehicle. You may like one particular deal more than another particular deal, one particular investment or something else. But really the best way to pick, in my opinion, is to find the best operators and let them do their thing. And so that's just a common axiom that's kind of time tested. Yeah, absolutely. And really kind of the last you know, points we want to make here, we addressed this in the last episode in real estate investing, and it's very similar, but you know, the capital stack of this can kind of be overlaid across any strategy uh, that a particular... <laughs> like 3D chess now we're playing, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so our continuum is more like 3D, 4D <laughs> here. Yeah, so there's so many ways you can slice and dice this, but but generally, you know, there's going to be, you know, the equity funds that are going and playing on the equity side of the capital stack. And so that's where to, you're a shareholder, you're an yep. owner in the shares of the business, who's the last guy to get paid, yep. generally. Yep. Or you can go up the capital stack yep. to the debt side as well. So there's venture debt and there's yep. growth debt and mezzanine debt. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, there's senior debt as well as junior debt. Mezzanine debt is generally going to be junior debt. And you know, they will charge a high interest rate, but they also may take some of the upside, but it's not going to be as much upside as an equity investor. And so, you know, if you are looking at these types of funds, you know, pay attention to where they're at in the capital stack, because obviously the higher up you are, the closer you are to debt, you know, the less risk there is because your first money out, you get paid first. And the farther you are closer to the common equity, right. the more risk you have. And I, I would say too, it's like the more sophisticated investors are, the more they like the debt space. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the less sophisticated investors love the equity. Hey, let me play for the upside. Uh -huh. But the reality is the debt guys structure deals so that they always get paid. They get paid first and yeah. they get paid most. I yep. mean, it's just pay me, pay me, pay me. <laughs> and they take far less risk. Yep. And they can earn really good returns. And yeah. then they can take a chunk of the upside too. You, the deals they cut are sometimes crazy good. Right. And right. where there's far less risk and almost equity level returns and not do a debt fund because you don't think there's enough upside. So Yeah. If you compare a debt fund as you know, opposed to debt and a real estate property, they're very, very different. I mean, debt funds and private equity can be making double digit returns, both from kind of the interest rate they charge as well as any carried interest in the profits. So just for example, let's take a private equity, you know, growth private equity yeah. company, and you're doing a mes debt. So, you know, maybe you're getting 10 to 15% on the mes debt, maybe it's a junior debt, but you understand there's how many assets are in play here. So right. it could be your debt is 100% secured, 
by the building that they own. You follow <laughs> me? So you're earning almost the same level of returns, but far less risk. Far less. And you understand, you know, you understand the senior mortgage or the senior debt in front of you. You understand. So even if the jockey does a lousy job, you're going to make money because you're going to be able to take the assets. Right. And, and so it's not a, you know, hey, don't look at this just because it's debt. In fact, it's the other way around. So yeah. I find the more sophisticated players are, the larger players are, the more they love the debt space yeah. and the more they tool debt. They basically change the debt around. I remember arguing with my venture capital guys, you know, back in the day. And I would argue for certain valuation. You know, so you, know, you, want, you always want to argue for <laughs> the entrepreneurs argue for a higher valuation. The, you know, the investors are arguing for a lower valuation to put the money in at. And I remember one of the venture capitalists laughed at me and said, tell me what valuation you want. I'll give you whatever valuation you want as long as you let me write the terms. <laughs> exactly. And so That's then they, they put in all these that, different yeah. covenants and terms yep. and levers and triggers and other things. That's where the valuation was kind of Exactly. <laughs> and I learned a thing or two. Yeah. You know, so these guys are financial wizards. Yep. A lot of the guys that are structuring this stuff. It's structured that, you know, heads I win, tails you lose, right. you know, <laughs> kind of deal. So from an investor's point of view, there's some huge wins in the debt space and mass yep. debt space. Yeah. And kind of the last thing I wanted to hit here real quick, because you mentioned this at the beginning, is that a lot of these strategies work better earlier in the economic cycle, right? And so what would you say, you know, kind of where we're at in the economic cycle and what areas of this would you, you know, jump into or would you wait? Would you kind of see if, you know, we are arguably at the later end of the business cycle, but, you know, there are a lot of things happening with the federal stimulus and other things that are prolonging, you know, this economic run. And right. Well, it's a great question and a very weird cycle. I mean, sure. and every cycle is different. That's right. why this isn't a, you know, this isn't check the boxes in type investing and requires thinking. And really the business cycle kind of bottomed in 2008, 2009. Yep. And we've been on a tear pretty much, you know, ever since, of course, we had very, very slow growth where you saw yes. the, you know, just looking at the unemployment rate did not recover during the Obama years. And right. And just we could barely, so it was not much a recovery. So I would say we were still in the bottom even through, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015 timeframe. So then what happened is things really started to yep. shift and all the stimulus started really trickling down and it started working. So we were early stage of the business cycle there. Then COVID hits, right. March 2019, and everything crashed. And so it kind of reset the cycle uh -huh. again. And so we're still now, as we're in recovery, we're in kind of bottom cycle with a caveat that there is a ton of money because of the stimulus in the public markets. Right. So it's kind of a early stage, but hype stage. And uh, yeah. so I think really, honestly, I think all these strategies would be yeah. a good time for these strategies. A the IPO times, market yeah. is still hot as can Very be. Hot. You know, it will see if that continues. So again, my forecast is we're going to see you know, upward bias in the markets, but a lot of volatility in public markets. Right. And since that's the source of all the capital generally, for everything used in all these strategies, you know, if there's a hiccup, things generally slow down. Right. But at this point, I think we're not yet at the end of the cycle. Yeah. And simply because of one, we had the COVID reset and then we had this massive stimulus happening right. in addition, it's putting more fuel on the fire. Right. And a lot of these strategies can be executed in shorter time frames, you know, three, five, seven years. And so especially if the strategy is on the shorter end of that, your risk from a you know, cycle standpoint is limited as well. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, that was a lot of information. Hopefully that was kind of helpful to break this down. You know, in the future, we are going to be interviewing uh, guests that are operating in this space that either run funds that are doing private equity strategies, venture strategies. And so we're pretty excited to get some of those guys and gals on board and talk more about this. Um, stay tuned for the next episode. We're going to be talking about hedge funds. This is kind of rounds out our big three on the alternative investment continuum. And we'll kind of be breaking down what th those look like. And thanks for joining in.